Welcome to Off Hours, a conversation between John Edwards and Chris Manning. In even more cookie follow-up, since this seems to be turning into uh, the cookie podcast, I have had a chance to try the cookie recipe that you suggested uh, a few episodes back, the one from chefsteps.com, the uh, ultimate guide to chocolate chip cookies when average equals amazing. I've had a bunch of people up for dinner a few weeks ago, and I've since tried it again, and uh, I will say that they are excellent chocolate chip cookies. I'm not sure that they're necessarily the best chocolate chip cookies out there, but they are pretty darn good, and I can highly recommend anybody who wants to use that recipe. There will be a link again in the show notes for anyone who wants to try it out. The only thing I have changed up is the original recipe suggests creating cookies from 100 grams of dough per cookie. And I've actually split that in half, and I'm now making them 50-gram cookies at a time because the originals were quite large. And while that's not necessarily a problem, uh, if you've just had a big meal or whatever, then um, 100 grams of chocolate chip cookies like that is actually quite a bit. So that's the only change that I made to them was uh, cutting the size of each cookie down in half and ending up with more. But I can uh, definitely recommend them. And... uh, The rate at which they are disappearing in the house uh, suggests that uh, they are a hit. So who takes the crown for world's best cookie for you? Well, I I think my my skill at cookie still wins. Um, I mean, that's, you know, that that's not quite a traditional cookie. But at this point, I still think that that uh, that wins over these uh, these cookies. So flame broiled cookie takes the cake. Yep, absolutely. What is a cake sized cookie? It really is a cake-sized cookie, and it, and it is quite excellent. So, yep, I uh, I still prefer that, although that is also a little bit more of a, an ordeal to make in terms of uh, the baking time and the the eating of it because it is something that you do sort of want to have enough people to uh, consume it all in one shot because it is best served warm. Yeah, so it is not the ideal thing to bake and then bring into your, you know, in, with your lunch or something like that. Uh, these cookies are certainly better for that. Uh, but they are, they are excellent, and uh, they are the right uh, right combination of chewy and crispy and moist and uh, very tasty. Well, that covers our taste buds. I hear your auditory senses have also uh, been experiencing uh, some of the best the world has to offer as of late. Well, I don't know about the best, but certainly the best that Apple is offering these days. Uh, we have talked a lot about uh, hearing protection and listening to things and noise-canceling headphones and whatnot over over a bunch of episodes. Uh, way back in one of our early episodes when we were talking about, a, we had a little gift guide and recommending things for the shop. Uh, both of us have recommended various headphones over the years. Uh, one of my favorites was the Bose QC 35s, which have since been replaced by the Bose 700s. Uh, they're the over-the-ears, uh, noise-canceling, active noise-canceling headphones. And uh, those are excellent in the shop. They help keep out the sort of the drone of machines and everything like that. And, and I quite like those. Uh, but they are quite large and they're, they're a bit awkward. And that's why for the last couple of years, I've been using the Apple AirPods quite a bit. And, uh, and I enjoy them quite a bit. The, the size is right. I can easily slip them into my pocket. Uh, and the user experience is quite good as well in terms of pairing it with your devices if you're an Apple user like I am. Uh, but one of my biggest complaints about them was the lack of noise cancelling and even the lack of passive noise cancelling. Uh, they weren't really blocking out much of the outside world from from listening. And uh, last week, Apple uh, released their AirPods Pro. Uh, these are uh, a pair of um, slightly redesigned in terms of their their uh, ergonomics. Uh, they now have a silicon tip on the end of it, which helps seal up your ear canal from the outside world. And they also have uh, noise cancelling, active noise cancelling built into them. Uh, so they listen to the outside world and they help create uh, anti-noise patterns for the noises that are around you to help uh, block out that noise. And that's what all of these um, active noise cancelling headphones are doing. They're they're doing some kind of uh, sort of math to figure out the uh, the sounds that are coming in, and then they create a uh, sort of a negative wave, uh, sort of a negative sound wave to to cancel them out. Uh, so these are the uh, these are nice because they've got you know the sort of the size and convenience of the AirPods, but they've also got the active noise cancelling. So I'm pretty happy with that. 
And how do you find transparency mode? Yeah, one of the one of the features they've added to this, and this is new to Apple, um, and Bose has had it in in some of their their headphones for a little while now, and Sony has them in some of their active noise canceling headphones too. Uh, the the transparency mode basically turns on the uh, the sound from the outside, so you can hear what's going on. I'm not a particularly big fan of transparency mode. If I wanted to be able to listen to the outside world, I would just take my headphones out. Uh, I I know there are some people when they're out running or whatever, they want to be able to hear what's going on around them. Uh, but I find it a little bit too distracting. And usually when I'm wearing headphones, I'm trying to actively cut out the outside world. So I, I'm not really a big fan of the, the transparency mode. Uh, I have used it a couple of times, um, but it's it's not really not really super convenient for me. And again, that's mostly because of the my use case. I'm, I'm usually using them in places where there is a, a bunch of noise going on. So have you found the noise canceling in the shop? Uh, they're actually pretty good. Uh, they're still not quite as good as over-the-ear headphones are. Uh, the over-the-ear headphones like the Bose QC35s that I've, I've been using over the last couple of years, they just have a huge advantage because they're blocking, you know, they're covering up your, your entire ear uh, so that they, they will definitely block out more noise passively than these will. Um, but the active noise canceling is pretty darn good. I'm I was pleasantly surprised with how how effective it was, and it's nice because when you put them in, initially all you're getting is the uh, passive noise canceling from just the fact that your your ears are plugged, and then it pairs to your device, and all of a sudden the active noise canceling comes on, and it's it's nice because it's sort of it feels like you almost go into this cocoon even even before any music plays or anything like that. Um, so you, you know, you, you don't hear the fan going anymore. You don't hear, um, you know, the car going or whatever. Uh, and it's, it's pretty impressive what they're doing. I would say that they're probably, probably about 90 to 95% as effective as the Bose over the ear headphones are for most noises. Uh, there's still certain things, as I said, are are slightly better for the, uh, with the Bose, I haven't tried it in a plane yet. Obviously, I haven't had a, I haven't been on a flight yet. But from a couple people that I've heard from who have flown with them, they're actually quite good on a plane. And any regular noises like that are are pretty good. So they they're certainly better than I was expecting them to be in terms of the active noise canceling. I I've tried a couple of other in ear no, active noise canceling headphones over the years, and I've never been particularly impressed with them. Uh, these ones are the first ones that I'm actually impressed with, and I may actually avoid upgrading my over-the-ear headphones uh, when the time comes and may I may just stick with these because they're super convenient they fit in my pocket and they're nearly as good as my other ones yeah so far so good it's like a sensory deprivation tank for your ears <laughs> yeah for my brain that's, that's usually what needs it it's not the <laughs> it's not the ears that need it it's, a, it's the brain that needs the cut off from the rest of the world uh, so so far that's pretty good and one of the nice things that they've done with these that uh, a bunch of in-ear headphones that have uh, sort of silicon tips or foam tips, the one of the problems that you find with them is that you tend to get this pressure difference between the inside of your ear and the outside uh, because they're because they're locking in your ear canal. There's no way for the pressure to dip, to uh, equalize between the two. And it's not as bad as, you know, or as, or as significant as if you're a diver, for instance. Um, you know, divers are used to dealing with significant changes in, in uh, pressure. Uh, and it's not, it's not that significant, but it's just enough that it kind of bothers you. And if you're flying with most of those in-ear headphones, it's something that you do really notice. Like you have to take them out and sort of repressurize your, your ears at some point because it's, um, it gets a little bit awkward and, and uh, can be it can be more than awkward um, sometimes. Like it, it gets, you know, sort of distracting at some points. Uh, so one of the things that Apple has done with this is they've actually got an air channel that goes through the whole headphone and into your ear canal. So even if you're wearing them on the plane at sea level, you know, the cabin pressurizes, you fly up, your ear canal will still pressurize with the rest of the plane. You won't f- have a differentiation there between the two, uh, which is a really nice little feature. And it avoids some of the problems that I've had in the past with these things. Like if you, let's say you're wearing these and you get into a car and you, and you close the door, that actually creates a, a slight increase in air pressure as you close the door. And a lot of active noise canceling headphones, particularly in-ear ones, 
have a really weird effect that happens with them and you almost get a little pop in your ear because of it and these ones i don't i didn't notice that i i did go out driving with them uh with them in yeah i didn't i didn't get that pop like i've had with others in the past so that was kind of a nice little nice little um touch that they did with these uh it's sort of one of those little details that most people don't really notice and it's it adds a lot of complexity to your industrial design because now you have to figure out a way of getting that air channel through the headphone and not have it affect the sound that's coming into it and things like that. So, yeah, it was uh, it was a nice little detail and and it's uh, I'm glad that they did it. it. It certainly made a big difference. And on top of that, they have a special mode you can put the AirPods into to help you choose the correct silicon tips for your your ear canal. What was that experience like? Yeah, that's something I I don't know that I've ever seen anybody do that before. This one the the way the app works is you put the the uh, AirPods in and then you press play on the demo and it plays some music. And what it's doing is it's listening using the outside microphone, the one that it u- it uses for the active noise canceling, and it checks to see if it can hear the music that's being played on the inside of your ear canal. And if it can hear that, then it means that the you don't have a good seal. You don't have a proper seal on the headphones. And um, so I tried it with the medium-sized tips that um, that it comes with by default. And mine, I was getting perfect, um, you know, sort of perfect uh, seal. So that wasn't a problem for me. I haven't tried the other two sizes yet to see if um, if that works with if my ears seal properly with all three of them. I suspect the small ones probably wouldn't, and the big ones probably would. So I may try the other one, one of the other pairs, just to see if one's more comfortable than the other. Uh, and the nice thing is that it tells you per ear which um, which size you should be using. So uh, some people have a slightly larger ear canal on one side than the other. So uh, this way you can sort of check to see if you've got a good uh, a good fit. And it was very informative because uh, Tamara tried them out, and she has quite small ears and has always had a tough time with in ear headphones. And um, she can't actually get a proper seal with even the smallest tips. Uh, her ears are just too small. And it tells her that um, that she's not getting a good enough seal. And so she's not actually experiencing the active noise cancelling the way that I do uh, because it's not sealing out all of the ambient noise around her. Um, so in her case, she's going to stick with her normal AirPods and her uh, Bose over-the-air headphones uh, going forward. Um, and, uh, she's just going to avoid the AirPods Pro because they're, they're not quite good enough for her yet. Uh, maybe if somebody releases some, uh, you know, some custom tips, maybe some foam tips that, uh, do a better job of, uh, sealing up the ear canal that maybe that, uh, that'll work for her in the future. But, uh, it is a nice way of checking to see if, if you're actually getting what Apple considers to be a proper seal and, uh, sort of the proper experience out of them. So it sounds like they've definitely broadened the market or potential addressable market for AirPods with these interchangeable tips, but uh, they haven't, haven't quite fully cracked the entire market then if, if they're not quite fitting her. Yeah. I think Tamara's uh, a considerable outlier when it comes to that. I, I don't think that, um, I, I don't think that they're going to lose a lot of sales from people whose ears are too small because I suspect she's probably, probably way out there on the you know sort of the bell curve but um yeah obviously there there are going to be people at either extreme who are unable to to wear them and i know from listening to people talk about the previous airpods as well um there are some people that those previous airpods just didn't fit well enough and uh, they were unhappy with them they would fall out of their ears or they just couldn't get a good enough um fit with them to uh to get good sound out of them so uh, these these i think are going to address a, a broader market in terms of who can actually wear them. So if you had problems with the air, regular AirPods, uh, it's worth trying the new AirPods Pro just to see if they uh, they fit better. And I do believe they're doing demos in the, sh- in the stores as well, so you can walk in and try them out. You don't have to buy them and return them if they're not working for you. Um, but give them a try because it is definitely a different experience than the normal AirPods. Still within the realm of Apple, but moving on to a different sense, uh, our sense of sight. We mentioned underscore David Smith's Moon Plus Plus complication for the Apple Watch last episode, and it has since been renamed. It is now called Geneva Moon. And the primary reason behind this 
is that the App Store on the Apple Watch, uh, you essentially have to dictate the, the app that you're looking for. And if you wanted to look up Moon++, Plus Plus, uh, it wouldn't actually come up in the search results because it would come out spelled plus plus. Uh, so what you would actually have to say in order to, to pull it up on the, the App Store on the Apple Watch is Moon plus sign plus sign, which uh, is not great for uh, discoverability. It doesn't roll off the tongue quite as uh, quite as well as Moon plus plus. No, no, it does not. So uh, underscore has has decided to to change the name, and uh, the complication is now called Geneva Moon. Uh, so if it's something you were were looking for and weren't able to find, uh, that is why. So you can now now find it with its uh, all new name. And I'm looking forward to what he's doing because he's um, so w- along with the name change of Geneva, he's um, announced that he's going to play around with some more complications as well. He hasn't. I don't think he's talked about exactly what those complications are, but I think he wants to experiment with uh, creating new complications that allow him to effectively create customizable watch dials and uh, on the Apple Watch, um, you know, through these complications and give functionality that he maybe would would be interested in doing as a as a custom watch face. So I, I think we'll see a bunch of of new complications coming out of uh, Underscore over the next year as he starts to play around with some some ideas and to see what he can do with it. Uh, I know that um, I know that I'm pretty happy with the moon phase that he's giving out of this one, and I'm curious to see what other things he decides to do because I know when he puts his mind to it, he's he's often got some intriguing ways of using um, you know using Apple sort of APIs and things like that that other people haven't really figured out yet. So we'll see what uh, see what he comes up with, but uh, look out for other Geneva complications from uh, Underscore because uh, there should be some in the future. And your own moon phase dial isn't too far distant now. It's getting a little closer here. You have pulled the trigger on ordering a pad printer. I have. I've finally uh, got the pad printer ordered uh, after a lot of back and forth and some confusion in terms of what I was getting and what I wasn't getting and things like that. It was, um, uh, we've been able to sort out what's what's going on. So I've put an order in for a pad printer from Kent Printers. And uh, I expect probably another two weeks or so. They're They're building the printer for me now in Mississauga. So I expect it's going to be another few weeks before I get it. And I also have to talk to them about uh, getting a few print plates uh, engraved as well so that I can experiment with uh, with my first uh, dials. And uh, one of the things that I am going to be doing is doing my own custom moon phase dial. Uh, I'm not particularly impressed with the printing on the default Eterna movement dial, so I am going to um, make my own. So I'm currently in the process of uh, designing that, and uh, hopefully printing that won't be too difficult. I, I think it's I think it'll be pretty easy. I don't think it's uh, I'm going to be doing anything too outlandish with it. Uh, but that'll be one of the first things that I experiment with when I uh, when I get this pad printer. Now the actual printing of the the moon phase dial is actually starting to sound more more complex than uh, I anticipated. It would be essentially going to be doing four distinct prints to to come to the the final product. Is that that correct? Yeah, I think right now it's looking like a like four. Um, so when you're pad printing, it's similar to doing a, a screen print on a on a t-shirt. So if you want to have different colors, each color needs to have its own print plate, basically. And in this case, I'm going to be doing probably a, a very dark blue for the background, the night sky. Uh, there's going to be the white for the moons themselves. Uh, some black printing on the moons, and then probably some stars. And I, I think I'm going to try, I, I'm getting a couple of different inks. Um, so I'm going to experiment with doing a gold metallic for the stars and also a silver metallic for the stars and see how they come out depending on, on which one looks better. I'll I'll go with one or the other. Uh, so each of those colors effectively needs to have its own print plate. Um, so that's just the nature of the beast. I know when uh, I was chatting with Crispin Jones at uh, Mr. Jones Watches over the summer when I went to visit him, uh, I think he said the most complex dial they have has something like, I want to say it's something like a dozen colors in it, maybe a little bit more than that. So it's it's pretty it's pretty wild. Um, you can do do some um, you know quite complex printing with these with these uh, printers, and uh, every single color that you produce or that you want to put on there needs to have its own. Uh, its own plate so yeah the uh the moon phase will certainly be more complicated to print than the actual dials themselves 
Uh, the dials themselves will probably be pretty basic. I suspect they're just going to be black uh, for now. So that's, you know, that's pretty easy to print. But the, uh, the moon phase dials will require four different uh, colors and that'll, uh, that'll make it a little bit more challenging. And not inexpensive to begin with either from the sounds of things. Yeah, if you want other people to make your your print plates for you, they're uh, they're not inexpensive. They're and you're looking at about a hundred dollars Canadian a plate by the time it's um, it's all said and done. So they're not uh, not the cheapest things on the planet. So I'm uh, also considering some ways of uh, of making my own print plates as well. So I'm um, I've started doing a little bit of research into buying a, a laser engraver, and uh, we'll have to see. I might uh, might end up with uh, with a laser engraver this year as well, or maybe early next year. Uh, so. Love we'll to see. It's uh, I I don't expect that I'm going to be making hundreds of different dial designs, but it's nice to have the ability to sort of iterate and and customize things your yourself on the fly. Uh, you know, if I can sort of come up with an idea on a uh, you know while I'm eating dinner on a Friday night, and then you know go into the shop and madly you know work away and engrave a plate. Uh, you know, I can I can play around with that idea late at night and not have to you know, put in an order for a plate and then wait a week or two for them to produce it and everything. Uh, so that's, it's kind of nice to be able to, uh, be able to speed up that, that iteration process and, and that design process. So I'm, uh, I'm pretty close to pulling the trigger on a, on a laser as well, but we'll still some, a little bit of research that I have to do to figure out what I actually want. With a, a laser engraver on hand, you could literally go from concepts to actual plate in just a matter of minutes, depending on, on how intricate you're you're trying to get. The 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 plates themselves will not take very long to laser etch. So that you're talking about a couple of minutes to do. So the design is actually going to take the longest to do. You know, actually sitting there in, you know, Affinity Designer or something like that, uh, creating a design that I like, and then outputting that to the laser engraver. That design work is going to take the most time. But then once I've finalized it, Sitting there and engraving it is going to take two minutes, five minutes, whatever. It'll it'll take almost no time at all, and then get it set up in the printer quickly. So yeah, if I want to, I could actually sit there and you know iterate quite quickly in terms of creating something. And if I if I realize that I print something and it's like ah that line is just it doesn't have enough weight to it, or it's it's too heavy, or maybe I I realize that. Uh, I don't know, like a uh, a letter or a number is out of place, then, you know, even though I've I've engraved a plate, I can just quickly turn the plate around, engrave another one on the, uh, you know, the backside of the plate or whatever, and uh, be good to go. And I can make a change quite quickly to it. So even if I have to make changes to a design after I've seen it printed on an actual dial, it's it's very, very fast if I've got my own laser engraver. And then, of course, there's the other advantages. I've got other things that I can engrave, like I could start deep engraving on the cases themselves, on the movements. And uh, it gives me a lot of flexibility in terms of playing around with that, maybe even making some um, applied numerals, uh, those sorts of things. So there's a lot of uh, a lot of possibilities that a laser engraver opens up to me. So I just need to make sure that I find the right tool to do what I needed to do because it's. I, I know that engraving some of the materials that I work with, like silver, is challenging. And it certainly... Uh, it's not every laser is going to be able to handle that kind of work. So I need to, uh, need to experiment a little bit and f- sort of find out what works best for me. And what was the process like for you settling on the, the inks that you've ordered? The inks that I'm getting are uh, a, a standard set of inks that uh, come out of a company in Germany. Uh, they're high quality pad printing ink. It's almost a little bit ridiculous because I'm getting a full set of 12 inks for doing Pantone colors and then two metallic colors and each of them comes in a liter container and I'm printing these tiny little watch dials in small numbers so I have a ridiculous amount of ink coming to me um, when I get this printer but the nice thing is that I do have the ability to mix up any color that I want so I don't have to just stick with stick with a, a you know sort of a one of the base colors for like let's say if I want to do a red, you know, let's say I decide to do, um, I don't know, a date, a date disc at some point, and I want red, red numbers on the date disc. I don't have to just pick the scarlet or the red or whatever that comes out of the tin. If I want to customize that completely, I can do that. Um, so there, there's certainly some advantages to having it. 
And when I, you know, when I sat down and thought about it, I figured, what the heck, I may as well, may as well just get them all now. Uh, they usually have a, a shelf life of a couple of years, so I can play around with it and and experiment. And maybe I can also play with this in in something other than just uh, dial printing and and start using it for some other, uh, you know, some other process as well, and and do some interesting. Um, interesting prints somewhere else that uh, take advantage of the wide range of colors that I'm going to have access to. Now, will you be acquiring some tooling to precisely mix these colors as well? Or are you just going to stick to an old school palette knife? I think it's going to be a combination of a very accurate scale uh, and a good old fashioned Pantone color book with the recipes in them. And I think I'm basically just going to sit there and start mixing it out and, you know, and sort of weigh out the, the, um, the various ink colors as appropriate to get the, the exact Pantone colors that I want. I'm not too concerned about them being absolutely dead on precise. Uh, you know, it's not like I'm sitting there saying I have to be, you know, within a half a percent of a particular Pantone color because it, it matches some, you know, whatever, whatever vision I have for it, or, you know, I know some companies are very, very picky about making sure that their logo is exactly the appropriate Pantone color that they've chosen, you know, their marketing team has chosen for it. I'm not that picky about it. So if it's off by 5% in tone, I'm not, not too concerned. Um, as long as it's, as long as it's close enough to the naked eye that if you were holding two of them at arm's length, you can't tell the difference between them then I'm going to be fine with that. I'm not, I'm not that picky about it, but I think a, uh, I think a palette knife and, and, a, an accurate scale and, uh, a, a recipe book, I should, I should be able to get pretty close to what I'm looking for. So have you settled on a particular shade of Pantone black for your logo? No, I haven't actually. I, I haven't picked up a Pantone book yet. I, that's something that I need to order and, um, and get one. So I, I have not actually picked out the, the perfect black for my, my logo yet. I, I may just, for the black, I may just stick with the, the base black that comes out of the, the tin. I'm not 100% sure. I guess I'll have to see. I, you know, I'll fry that black and if I look at it and go, that's really not very good, then I may, I may change it out. Um, but I'll, uh, I'll have to see. I, some of it comes down to actually experimenting with it and seeing how it looks on the dial at the scale that I'm looking at. Uh, you know, as we've talked about when it comes to designing things like this, it's really easy when you're looking at something at a large scale, you know, like on a 27-inch monitor, for instance, and everything looks perfect, and then you print it out at 100% scale, and you're like, wow, I can't read any of this. So, mm-hmm. you know, I I may look at this stuff and, and look at the printing that's on the dial, and it, it's such a small amount of ink in such a small area that small changes in the color of that uh, of that text may not have a huge impact on on what the way it looks and i could also experiment with with it a little bit and say hey maybe maybe i should be using a red ink or a blue ink or something like that for the the numbers and and maybe that becomes part of uh you know sort of part of a signature of my dials is that it's not just black ink that's in there um so i'll i'll be experimenting quite a bit when i get them uh when i get this printer and play around with different colors, play around with uh, different designs, see what works and, and what doesn't at the scale that I'm working at and and um, just sort of try it out. I'm, I've got some nickel silver sitting there, which is very close in color to silver uh, that I'll be using for my dials. So I should be able to sort of make a bunch of, of fake dials to uh, to test out and I can do, you know, sort of some color charts and see what, what looks right and what doesn't and see how people read them and if one looks better than another and maybe figure out if, if one has too much contrast or one just, just doesn't read quite right and, uh, and see what, uh, see what I like. Yeah, if you nailed just the right shade of indigo for that night sky on the, the moon phase dial, it might time quite nicely to have all the, the numerals done uh, in the same color. That's just it. I may I may find a, a color, you know, as you say, something like a nice indigo that, um, that would work perfectly for the night sky and if it's you know if it looks good on the on the text maybe that's the way to go with the text so yeah we'll have to see i i i also really want to get a um as i said i really need to get a pantone book in my hands because looking at these colors on a screen is just not the same as looking at it in print uh, i know um m- most people never get a chance to sort of play around with 
with uh, print design. And those who do who aren't professionals at it are often frustrated. I know I certainly was with how the, the colors that you've got on screen don't look anything like what they come out of the printer. And this is where the Pantone colors make a big difference and, you know, calibrating your monitors so that they, they're representing things. But even then, it's it's not a it's not quite the same looking at a screen is not the same as looking at the uh at a printed object so um getting that pantone book will be really informative in terms of figuring out what colors i like and what i don't and and you know picking picking something that's going to look good in the printed format and you know sort of in front of me uh so that i think i've got an idea of what i'm looking for but i'm again it's all been on screen so far so i, I don't know that it's going to be you know that it's actually what i'm going to need yeah, the first time I encountered that was was back in high school, working on the the yearbook team there, and it is it's startling sometimes the the difference between what you'll see on the the printed page versus what you're seeing on screen. And mm. uh, fortunately, I didn't I didn't learn from experience by making a mistake. But we were introduced very early on to the the Pantone color guide, and I would think something looked absolutely hideous on screen, uh, but then you look at the actual color in the Pantone book. And you're like, no, that's that's exactly what I want. It's, it's beautiful. It's just right. I just got to grin and bear it working on the design on the screen. And then when you actually get the, the printed work back and in, in, in your hands, it looks amazing. Uh, whereas if you end up in the, the reverse situation where something looks amazing on screen and then you, you get it back and it's this uh, disgusting yellow or, or brown. Muddy color. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, it can certainly be a, a startling surprise. Yeah, I, I think as well we're we're really lucky and and sort of a bit uh, we're a bit spoiled when it comes to screens these days because so many of us are using uh, things like iPads and iPhones that have they're not they're not perfectly calibrated screens, but they're all very consistent and that that really helps. Like for instance, when it comes to photography. We're, we're all like, I know that if I send you a photograph, the, the image that you are seeing on your screen is going to look really close to the image that I'm seeing on my screen. And that, you know, so we're, we're sort of spoiled from that respect. And we're also not printing as many things as we used to. So we don't have to sort of deal with that and run into that problem as much as we, uh, we once did. But it's, it's certainly in this case, it's certainly a problem because, uh, small changes in colors can have a huge impact on the legibility of a dial. And so that that's going to make a big difference to me. And we'll see, you know, we'll see what through some experimentation what actually works and what doesn't. But it's um yeah, it's it's such a such a tough thing to to nail. But once you get it right, it's it looks you can't imagine it being any other way and and I'll also need to be able to recreate that in the future and that's where the Pantone colors comes in handy. If I know that it's going to be, you know, whatever Pantone indigo color I've found, for instance, I can recreate that in the future if I need to, because I'll know which color it is and I'll be able to go back to that recipe and be able to recreate it. I don't have to guess at it. And ideally, even if I change to a different ink uh, company in the future, I should be able to recreate that color very closely uh, using those Pantone recipes. So I'm I'm looking forward to playing around with it. It's I don't really have a lot of experience with with print like this. So I'm this is something that I'm looking forward to playing with. It's a it's a, a different different process for me. A whole new area to explore. Do you think you'll get into to do any pad printing with your enamels? So that's something that I've I've haven't really read anything about, but I've got some ideas to play with. So normally with enamels, you're sifting a large grain enamel onto the metal and usually in the dry. And then you let it bake and it, it sort of fuses together. So that's sort of the, the standard enamel techniques that I'm using. But you can also take very fine enamel. So you can grind it up so that it's a, it's a very, very fine uh, powder. And you can treat it like a... You can treat it like an oil paint and you can actually paint on top of the enamels. So you'll often see this in like, let's say 18th, 19th century pieces where you'll see some engine turning on a piece. Then they'll put a base enamel down, translucent enamel, you know, maybe it's a pink or a blue or something like that. Then they'll fire that. 
And then on top of that blue enamel, you'll have somebody come in and paint with basically an oil paint that has a pigment made out of enamel. And you can get these beautiful, beautiful paintings out of uh, these enamel paintings out of this process. Um, obviously, you have to be a skilled painter to do this, but even some of the stuff that you see now, like if you see the uh, Vacheron Constantine, they've done some gorgeous pieces over the years, some of their, their Metier de Art pieces. Uh, those are painted and enameled using a technique like that. But one of the side effects of that is that if you can get the consistency right, it should be possible to actually use that sort of enamel paint as uh, an ink for the pad printer. And I'm really curious to try that out and see if it works. It's going to take some experimentation, and I don't know how well it's going to work, but I, I really hope that I can figure it out because I think that would look really really interesting. You know, take an enamel dial, you know, maybe do a, do some guilloche work on it, uh, do a nice blue on it, let's say, and then be able to take a, another color and actually print the numbers, let's say, using using this technique, uh, this this sort of oil paint uh, enamel technique, and see if I can figure that out because I think that that, that could lead to some interesting work if I could figure that out. I've seen Zizou Lacoutes do some dials where the enamel is actually raised. Uh, it's, it's of such a, a viscous consistency when it's being fired. So you could almost get that, that same raised effect that you often get from, yeah. from pad printing if you were able to, to replicate something like that with your, your enamels. But you'd have to have a, a very, very fine grain uh, of, of glass that you're working with and then have a, a, a viscous carrier. Mm-hmm. Well, the funny thing is that in in normal enameling, those fines, and that's actually what we call them as the fines, we're usually washing them away because we don't want them in our in our work. And at least I don't in um, in the work that I'm doing because I'm looking for translucency. I'm looking for a nice, beautiful translucent color. And those fines tend not to produce very good translucent colors. Uh, they because they're so fine, they tend to oxidize quickly, and so you get you get weird things happening with them. Uh, so in my case, I'm often working with particle sizes that are maybe closer to maybe like a like a normal table sugar, the sort of sugar that you're putting in your in your coffee in the morning. That that sort of sugar can or that sort of grain size is is typically what I'm working with or aiming for with my enamels. And the fines tend to be something more along the lines of like a confectioner's sugar. Uh, like a icing sugar kind of kind of texture or or grain size, and those tend to be cloudy when you try enameling those in a translucent color. So most of the time, I'm actually trying to wash away those those fines. But in this case, I could actually use those and turn them into something hopefully useful and um, and do something with them. There's a Henry Ford quote I can't quite put my my finger on at the moment. It's basically about like. Uh not having any waste, like finding a, mm. an avenue to uh, turn your waste into to something useful and, and profitable. Yeah, most enamelists use the fines as a counter enamel. So often you are enameling on the back of a piece and mm. that helps you balance the, what's the term I'm looking for? The deformation of the, the substrate? Yeah, you're, the, the enamel is, is putting a lot of force on that on that metal and it wants to buckle the metal. It's, it's got a different, a slightly different coefficient of expansion than the metal does. And if you enamel the backside of the piece, then you're essentially creating a sandwich with the metal inside of, you know, inside of two layers of enamel. And those enamel layers should fight each other and counteract each other when it comes to those uh, differing sort of forces when it comes to that expansion or, and contraction. Uh, and so a lot of, and, and of course, a lot of times the, the backside of the enameled piece isn't something that you see. It may be the back of a, a picture frame or the back of a pendant or something like that, or in the case of watches, the back of the dial. And so you'll see these often odd colored uh, counter enamels on the back of it. And the reason that there are these weird colors is because people just take the fines that they don't have any need for, and they just dump them all into the same container. And they then fire that on the back of the the piece that they're working on. And so you can often end up with these sometimes really hideous colors and other times quite spectacular 
weird colors on the back of a of an enamel piece and that's because of these um these sort of finds that they're reusing as a as a counter enamel i find a lot of american-made pocket watches have a greenish blue yeah. tinge in the white that they they put on the back of their dials yeah i suspect that that is probably a combination of whatever colors they're using for the text on the dial as well as the white as the background and so it's probably a mixture of those two that are that are creating that sort of um that sort of whitish green color that's there i i know i've seen that on on a couple of the pocket dials the pocket watch dials that i've got uh, the fines are the the counter enamel that you're using on the back you want it to be the same enamels that you're using on the front uh, because different enamels even even from the same sort of series of enamels from a company they can all have a slightly different coefficient of expansion and so you you want to try and match up the the counter enamel with the front side enamel as close as possible. And while we're on the the subject of enamels, and given we've been talking a little bit about the Pantone color guide, do you know of of anything equivalent to Pantone in the world of enamels? I know most enamelists will just fire all their enamels and leave them hanging on the wall, yeah. so they they know they kind of make their own makeshift Pantone guide. But it, does anything like that exist? Or? <laughs> Absolutely not. It's the Wild West out there when it comes to colors and enamels. And there's a few reasons for that. Uh, as you say, most most enamelists will actually create their own color charts. And what they're doing with that is that they are using the metals that they're going to be firing on uh, and the actual colors they're firing with, the, the enamel colors they're firing with. And they will do little samples, basically, that they put on a board and they can then reference those. I have color charts that have been made and printed that are supposed to be representative of the enamel colors, and they never are. They're, they're certainly nowhere near as close as a Pantone chart is. And the reason for that is because there are so many different variables that go into firing an enamel and getting it to come out the right color. All of the color that you're seeing in an enamel is caused by the various metal oxides that are in the enamel. And those oxides all react differently to being heated. And if, you, if you're doing slightly different things with it, like let's say you're using a little bit of, um, let's say something like clear fire, which is a, it's a flux that you put down on the metal to help the enamel sort of stick to the, the metal initially when you're, when you're firing it. Uh, something like that can change the way that those, those metal oxides actually react with the oxygen as they're heated so you might get a slightly different color if uh, let's say you're using a, a nice goldish yellow you might get a slightly different color if you're using clear fire than if you're not or depending on the metal and how you've prepped it if i'm using sterling silver for instance i'm going to get a slightly different color than if i'm using fine silver even though there's only seven and a half percent copper in that sterling silver it's amazing that you can actually get a you get a noticeable color shift. Uh, sometimes it's fine. It's it's exactly you know it's close enough to what you want that it's not a problem. Uh, I know some of the best enamelists that I've I know out there, people like Phil Poirier um, and uh, and Bill Brinker, they're often you know doing doing their work on sterling silver and they get gorgeous colors out of it. Uh, but if you compare it to a fine silver, it's just that slight different color. Uh, so there's just so many variables that are involved there. It's it's almost impossible to, you know, to really get a good color chart going that's accurate. Uh, also, how many layers of enamel you put down and how thick they are. Uh, if you're using gold, different carats of gold are going to look wildly different underneath uh, the enamel, uh, certainly compared to silver. Uh, also, the uh, metal oxides tend to react to silver very differently than they, rea- they react to gold. And the various alloy, alloying metals that you're using in gold. There's a lot of black magic involved in enameling. Uh, I think the, the owner of Thompson Enamels, they're, they're one of the big American enamel companies. Uh, I seem to remember that he was, he was doing a bunch of research into the different variables that are involved in enameling. And I think they, they figured out that there were 14 different variables that changed the way that enamel came out when you were firing it. And, I think they were saying that the artist has control over about six of those variables. So there, there's always stuff in there. There's always these wild cards in there that you can't quite control. And 
Um, and so because of that, it's, it's never going to be absolutely perfect every time. Certainly not as close as modern ink technology is. Modern ink technology is, has become so far in terms of being able to reproduce colors accurately just because it's something that printers care about. Uh, and uh, we have a lot more control over that. But and unfortunately with, with enamels, it's, you just don't have that much control over the, the colors. Six out of 14 variables. That's brutal. That's why I say this. It's it's a lot of black magic involved with with enameling, and uh, that's why I have a huge amount of respect for for people like uh, Phil and and Bill. the The quality of enamel work that they're doing, uh, the clear enamels they're getting, uh, the bright colors, the brilliant colors. It, it's just it is so difficult to do well, and when you see it done well, it is unbelievable to behold. But it's you know those of us who are who are true amateurs at it it's really tough to to replicate what these guys are doing and uh, because that's you know especially somebody like bill brinker he has spent so many thousands of hours enameling and uh he he just has it he really has an act for it so uh, i doubt that i'll ever be able to catch up to to what somebody like he's doing but um and even phil again I, i know phil hasn't done as much enameling lately as he as he used to but um, some of his pieces, they are just so good. And, uh, it's, it's really tough to, to replicate that unless you spend a lot of time experimenting and you have your process down exactly right. And, you know, you sort of, you follow your process the same every time. And even then there's always that chance that it, it just doesn't quite work out and you have to, you know, do another piece and fire it again. Or in worst case scenario, actually dissolve the enamel off of the, the metal piece and start from scratch dissolve the enamel i've not heard of anyone ever doing that how does how does that process work using a really strong acid (laughs) yeah you start with uh, i think it's hydrofluoric acid and uh which is extremely nasty and you uh you leave it in sort of some some warm hydrofluoric acid uh overnight and hope that it uh, dissolves all of the enamel that you're trying to get off because if there's any enamel left on there then you're gonna have problems and then you uh, take it out rinse it off start enameling from scratch it doesn't does not sound like a, a pleasant process, but I suppose if you're enameling on something that's engine turned, it would be well worth the effort. Yeah, if you're if the piece that you're working on has hundreds of hours of work in it already, or even tens of hours in it already, uh, it it may not be practical to actually to actually do that. And I know a couple of people who have done restoration work on vintage pieces, and so there'll be damage on one part of a of an object. And they'll remove it from the piece, like remove that panel or whatever from the piece, and then they'll dissolve the enamels off of it and then sort of refire the piece with new enamels. Uh, so sometimes that's what you need to do to be able to, to do some restoration work. But yeah, it's not something I have I ever have any interest in doing. If if I screw up the enamel work, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna start from scratch. I'm I, I don't wanna play around with acids like that and uh, and play around with dissolving dissolving glass. It's just uh, not 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 fun. A lovely one-off piece of of enamel work on on a watch is uh, coming from none other than Recep Recepi. In the the next little while, he's got a, a unique piece with a, a lovely blue enamel dial coming up mm-hmm. for the the only watch auction. And uh, we, we've talked about Recep's work a, a number of times here on the show. And uh, this this chronometre contemporain is, is simply stunning. Oh yeah. Yeah, I I would wish that I could get my hands on this and see it in person. I I really want to. Uh, uh, well, all of his pieces are like that. I love to. I love the finishing work and the details that he puts into things. And I seeing there there have been a couple people that have done some some nice simple enamel dials lately. That kind of um and and his isn't isn't as simple as as some of the other ones that I'm thinking of. But once I've had a chance to sort of get my process down for making normal dials. I do really want to experiment with some enamel dials because there's some really nice dials out there right now. And the colors you can get out of enamel work. Uh, I mean, we've, we've talked a lot about uh, Kari Vudalainen stuff as well. Um, some of the colors that he uses are just so fabulous. So I'd love to try and experiment a little bit with some enamel dials at some point. I, I doubt that I would ever do a lot of them just because they are a lot of work. And as we've said, if they, if something goes wrong, you're basically starting from scratch. So. Uh, we'll see what I can do, but I I do really want to experiment with uh, with enamels at some point. Uh, you can do some some really nice stuff with it. You can just imagine the sort of things you'd be able to to pull off with that that moon phase dial. 
that kick this whole whole conversation off. You get some really neat depth effects going on there, and uh, I mean, it would take your your number of of passes substantially up from just four. But, yeah. Uh, yeah, I think the the end result could be well worth it. Yeah, certainly the there's a depth that you get with enamel that you just can't get with um with printing inks, right? Because you're talking about a glass. And the the glass is going to be translucent, and uh, you know if you build it up enough, you're getting a depth of color that you just can't get any other way. Uh, so yeah, there's there's something about enamels that uh, that you just can't replicate any other way. So I I really would love to play around with it, but I I don't think it'll ever be very many of those being done by me, just because the amount of work that's involved in them is is quite high, and of course the cost would would then be quite high as well. So. Yeah, it's uh, but it's you know I I do want to play around with it a little bit though because it's uh, there's some really neat possibilities there. Well, the the estimate for Regeps pieces is forty to sixty thousand Swiss francs. I imagine it's gonna break <laughs> easily into six figure territory by yeah. the time the hammer hits. Yeah, I I can't see that watch selling for less than a hundred. So, you know, if I was getting that kind of money for my watch, then I could certainly justify doing uh, a lot of them. But I I think it may be a, a few years before I'm in uh, regep territory in terms of uh, my watch prices. Well, Crivier was only founded back in 2012. So, you know, by, by 2026, <laughs> I, I expect to see one of your pieces at uh, only watch. Thanks for listening to off hours. You can find detailed show notes at offhours.show. If you'd like to keep up to date with the show, follow us on Twitter at Off Hours. John can be found on Twitter at Under the Loop, and Chris can be found on Twitter and Instagram at Silver underscore Hand.